and in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by Him were all things created that are in heaven, and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. And He is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He should have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated, and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled, and the body of His flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight, if ye continue in the faith grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard, and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereby Paul am made a minister, who now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh, for his body's sake, which is the church, whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, that now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, whom we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. And God will again bless the reading of his word to our hearts. I invite you to take your hymn book again and turn to the back as we sing Psalm 100. Perhaps my fav one of my favorite songs I want us to sing again this morning, Psalm 100. And would you stand with me as we sing this great psalm, Psalm 100. So oh. 
seated. Thank you, yes. I invite you at this time to take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 100. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 100. And we will read it here. We just sang Psalm 100, but now we will read it from the psalmist himself. Psalm 100. And let us hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 100. It says, A psalm of praise. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people. And the sheep of his pasture enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting, and his truth endureth to all generations. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you this morning for this wonderful psalm. And God, as we come before your word, we are reminded of the necessity to praise and magnify and laud your name. And God, we admit unto thee, God, our sinful condition. That God, it is rather so much easier for us to complain. It is so much easier for us, God, to offer up murmuring before thee. But God, you have called us to praise and magnify your name, to bless your name always, to be thankful, to be ever mindful that it is we, that it is not us that have created ourselves, but it is you. And we are the sheep of thy pasture, and you are good, and your mercy endures forever. And God, we want to offer you praise, Lord, today for saving us, snatching us, Lord, out of the pit of sin, God, we are truly on a highway that would lead us to utter destruction. But God, we thank you that, God, you have caused us to change direction. And God, we are now on the highway of holiness. God, marching towards Zion, that beautiful city of God. And you have put in a new song in our heart, even praise unto our God. And God, we now have a desire to worship and praise your name. And so, God, I pray that as we leave this place... We would leave here with a greater desire to praise and magnify our God. 
who has delivered us from so great a death and has translated us to the kingdom of your dear Son. So God, we pray, come now and bless the preaching of the word of the Lord. Might you get a name unto yourself. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Among the psalms that we sing, there's perhaps none loved by God's people more than Psalm 100. It has been an anthem among Reformed Christians for years. This psalm is more than simply an anthem, though. It promotes the promise of worship from all the nations, from very beginning in verse 1, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. It speaks of the universal expanse of the kingdom of God and the universal worship that should flow from the nations. It is a psalm that reveals that we are owned of God. We are not our own. We have not made ourselves. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. It is a psalm in which demands are made by the Lord. And these demands are binding upon the nations as a whole and not just God's people alone. And because God's name is not hallowed everywhere, and His name is not worshipped everywhere, therefore we must go with the gospel, and we must command the nations that they worship the one true living God. One person has rightfully said, missions exist because worship does not. And this is why missions does exist. Because there are parts of our world and even our own state and our own country where God is not worshipped. And in that great prayer that the Lord gave us in the Lord's Prayer, He said, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. And what He is praying is that God's name would be made holy and irreverent through the whole earth. In this psalm it is calling all the lands... He is calling the earth to praise and magnify the Lord. And this demand comes to you and to me today. This demand to worship, to make a joyful noise, to serve the Lord, to come before His presence with singing, to enter His gates with thanksgiving, into His courts with praise, to be thankful and bless His name, is a command that comes to you today. But the question that you must answer is, will you worship the Lord, your God, with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind? Will you as a psalmist here acknowledge his sovereign prerogative in your life? Have you come this morning through the church doors with thanksgiving in your heart and praise upon your lips, ready to magnify and adore and worship the one true living God? There's something you must understand in Psalm 100. These verbs make, serve, know, enter, be thankful, bless, are all imperatives. 
These are not options. These are demands upon you and I today. We are to worship God. And in light of this, I want to bring the message. Jehovah's demands upon the lands. Jehovah's demands upon the lands. And I want you to see what these demands are. First of all, what are Jehovah's demands? Well, we will see in particular six of these. The first thing I want you to see in verse 1, that Jehovah demands is universal worship. In verse 1, he says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Or as the margin puts it, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all the earth. This is a call to universal worship. Note the very first imperative in our text. Make a joyful noise. Again, this is not an option. When you came into the church house this morning, when you entered through the gates, when you entered through the doors, it was a command placed upon you by God to make a joyful noise unto His name. But who is it in our text that is to make a joyful noise? Notice he says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Or as I mentioned, the margin reads, all the earth. This is a command to the inhabitants and nations. This is a command that goes beyond just where you and I are in the church house. God demands... The crown rights of King Jesus demands that all people, kings, princes, queens, presidents, senators, representatives, down to the blue-collar, white-collar worker, offer praise unto God, no matter where they are on planet earth. Make a joyful noise to the earth, all, to the Lord, all the earth. And this phrase, make a joyful noise, literally in the Hebrew it means to split the ears with sound. Now think about it. When God wants you to worship Him, He wants you to worship Him with a voice of praise and a shout unto Him. To literally split the ears. I don't know if you've ever been to a baseball game or a football game. But if you go to a college football game, particularly down here, and you hear the people shouting as someone scores a touchdown, and you hear the shouts of acclamation, how easy it is for us to shout about our favorite sports team, but how difficult it is for us to offer a shout of praise to God for what He has done for us. And this does not show our own carnality at times. That we are more ready to offer praise for the secular things than to offer a shout of praise for God delivering us from so great a death and from so great a condemnation and bringing us into a relationship with His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Hear this call to make a loud shout of praise, a shout for joy. And this call to worship, as one writer said, this call to worship is international in its scope. And it drives the mission of the church. 
We are to command the nations. We are to preach to the nations the need to worship God. And as I mentioned, missions exist because worship does not. This is why we must go to the nations with the gospel. Because God demands worship. Look with me in Psalm 96 and verse 1. It is the mission of the church to promote this worship of God. Psalm 96, verse 1. Oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord. Bless His name. Show forth His salvation from day to day. This is our responsibility. We are as the church to sing to the Lord a song of praise. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Sing unto the Lord and bless His name. Show forth, display His marvelous salvation day to day. Speak of His grace, His saving grace day to day. Verse 3, declare His glory among the heathen. His wonders among all the people. We are to go to the nations. The church has a responsibility, even in this community, to declare the glory of God to the heathen roundabout, to declare what wondrous things God hath done. Why? Verse 4, for the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. We have the one true living God, and we will get to that in just a moment. But we have this demand placed upon us by Jehovah of universal worship, not just the church, but all nations. And the church has a responsibility of bringing this message of the gospel in order that God might be worshipped throughout all the earth. And as I mentioned, because the worship of God is not universal, therefore evangelism exists. What a wonderful thing it is to read the story of a man like John Patton that would go to a cannibal island where it was thought that there was no hope and he would win that island to Jesus Christ. And these cannibals that in the past had previously killed and eaten missionaries are now with their voice now offering praise and adoration and praise to God for the great salvation that they have received. What a wonderful thing to hear the praise and worship of God. So how will we see this universal worship of God occur? We read in the Bible that the day will come when the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. In Malachi 1.11, that from the rising of the sun, even to the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. In every place, incense shall be offered unto my name. My name will be made great among the Gentiles, saith the Lord. How will that happen? Well, we understand that God uses means to accomplish His sovereign purposes here upon earth. 
And how will we see this universal worship of God occur? Number one, we must engage God in the place of prayer. We must be engaging in prayer. Look with me in Matthew 6. Turn there with me. And I made reference to this just a few moments ago. In Matthew 6 and verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord here. Matthew 6, verse 9. Here is the Lord's prayer. He says, After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. As we engage in the place of prayer, one of the first petitions we are to pray for is that the name of God would be hallowed. It would be made irreverent that the name of God would be worshipped throughout the entirety of the earth. And this is why God hates the sin of blasphemy. Why He detests idols. And why we read in the Old Testament about people being stoned and put to death for worshipping other gods because God is a jealous God. God, and there is no other person that can get glory but Him. We are to pray that the name of God be made hallowed and be made holy throughout the entirety of the earth. What are we to do next? Verse 10, it says we are to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So the next petition we are to pray for the kingdom of God to come. That what God is doing in heaven that it might be accomplished here upon earth. We are to pray for the expanse of the kingdom of God. We are to pray that God's kingdom would be visibly demonstrated here upon planet earth. So the way we will see universal worship is by praying that God would establish his kingdom here upon earth as it is in heaven. And that his name would be hallowed throughout all the earth. This is one of the means that God uses. But also if we're going to see this universal worship of God occur, we not only should engage the Lord in prayer, but we must be engaged in preaching. Look with me in Matthew 28. Matthew 28 and verse 18. We know this as the Great Commission. Matthew 28 verse 18. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore... And teach all nations, or make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So not only are we to pray, but we are to put feet to our prayers. And what I mean is, as we pray, we're to go out and actively pursue what it is we're praying for. If we are praying that God would save Colombia, if we are praying that God would bring salvation to the people of this city, it is one thing to pray about it. It is another thing to go out and begin preaching the gospel to those for whom we have been praying. And this is what God has commanded us to do. Not only to pray, but to preach. 
And one of the ways that we will see the universal worship of God take place is not only through prayer, but through the preaching of the Spirit-blessed gospel. You'll note in verse 18, 19, and 20 that the word all appears three times. We have all power, all authority. You say, well, this universal worship of God will never occur. Well, Jesus said that all authority, all power is not only given to him in heaven, but upon earth. We have all the power to accomplish the great commission that is needed. He has given us the power of the Holy Spirit, and he has given us his power from heaven to accomplish it. We have all power to go to all nations, verse 19. He says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. He didn't just say there in Jerusalem. He didn't just say to Samaria, but he said you were to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. To the four corners of the earth. You have all power to go to all nations. And what are we to do? We're to teach all things, verse 20, that he has commanded This goes from the gospel down to the very laws of God to teach both the people and the nations obedience to the crown right of King Jesus and the lordship of Christ over both individuals and nations. The last thing I want you to see about this universal worship of God, it will occur by engaging Him in prayer, by engaging in preaching. But last of all, it is the prerogative, the sovereign prerogative of God to bring it to pass. As I quoted to you, Matthew, uh, Malachi 1.11, that from the rising of the sun, even the going down of the same, my name will be great among the Gentiles. And Isaiah 66, verse 19 and 20, It speaks about that the islands that are far off that have not yet heard of his fame, that they will hear of it and they will worship him and praise him. My friend, this is not a far off goal. This is what the Bible teaches, that all kings, all nations will bow down and worship him. Jehovah demands universal worship. He demands a worship from the greatest position of authority down to the lowest. All men are commanded to worship him. There is no one outside this sovereign command of God. No king, no queen, no president, no dictator has a right to wave their finger in the face of God and say, you know what, I am the one exception. There was one man in the Bible who thought that he could be an exception, Nebuchadnezzar. And you remember what God did to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar walked out and he said, I have built this great kingdom. And remember what God did? He cast him down to the ground and made him eat grass like an ox until he realized that there is one that reigns in heaven, the most high God. He is able to humble and abase men. So Jehovah, according to our text, demands universal worship. And what are we doing therefore to see that this universal worship takes place? Well, there are two things we can do. As I shared with you, we can pray that God's name be hallowed. And we can pray that his kingdom comes just as it is in heaven it would be upon earth. And we can engage in the preaching of the gospel. 
And by these small, implemental tasks that we do, we will over time see God operate His sovereign prerogative. So we see that Jehovah demands universal worship. But secondly, back to Psalm 100, I want you to see that He not only demands universal worship, but He demands service. Notice verse 2 of Psalm 100. Serve the Lord with gladness. This is another imperative. Not only universal worship, but service. He has commanded you and I to serve Him. And we are to live our lives as a living sacrifice. Romans 12 and verse number 1. And you cannot separate worship from service. The greater your worship, the greater desire you have for service. And this is true if you are daily in the Word, daily reading the Scriptures, daily in prayer, regularly attending church, fellowshipping, the greater your worship of God, the greater the desire God will put in your heart to serve Him. But if you grow cold in these Normal tasks that we should be doing as Christians, engaging in public worship, the reading of the Word of God, prayer and evangelism. If you grow cold in these things, then your desire to serve God, you will find, will begin to grow cold as well. And as you worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness, you as well serve Him with the oil of gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. Now isn't it amazing that God has to actually give us a command in His Word, serve me with gladness. How many times do we see Christians and they're upset that they have to serve the Lord and they're out passing out tracts or they're serving at the church or they're vacuuming and cleaning in the church or doing these menial tasks and they just, there's no joy in their heart. The Bible says we are to serve Him with gladness. First and foremost, we serve God. And we are to do so heartily as to the Lord. As you and I serve God, we should serve Him with every fiber of our being. We are to serve as heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Even when you go to work and you work your job... Remember, you're not working for men. You're working for God. And you do so as unto Him, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. That's why I believe the Scripture teaches that the greatest employee should be the Christian. Why? Because he is not serving the employer per se, but he is serving one greater. He is serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And he wants to do his work heartily as unto the Lord. And a Christian should be the best employee that any employer should have. They should be serving the Lord with gladness. Because of the ultimate reward of heaven that lies above. And you can serve the Lord with gladness. When you consider the pit of sin that you are rescued from, 
and the solid rock that you have placed upon. And you can serve the Lord with gladness, for you've been translated from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of light. And you can serve the Lord with gladness, for your blessings far outnumber the trials of your life. Many times we have to go back and sing that hymn. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God hath done. Count your many blessings, and see what God hath done. Church I grew up in, many times we changed the words to that hymn. And we would sing, rather than count your blessings, name them one by one. We would say, count your many blessings, weigh them ton by ton. Because the blessings that God has lavished upon us far outweigh what we had prior to salvation. God commands us to serve Him. So flowing from this worship should be service unto God. And I ask you today, what are you doing for service unto God? What is it that you're doing? Now, don't think that just to serve God, you have to be standing behind a pulpit or necessarily on a mission field. You can serve God in your secular employment. That can be your avenue as a means of being a witness to Christ. But you must have some means of service to God. What is it that God would have you do to serve Him? And I submit to you, you that are in the secular workplace, that that is your mission field. The people that you are around, God has placed you in a particular job around particular people that you would have never been around otherwise. And He has given you that particular position in order that you might spread abroad the fame of His name and make known who Jesus is. So he has commanded us to worship. He has commanded us to serve. But note that Jehovah thirdly demands corporal worship. Note with me verse 2. In the latter part of verse 2 he says, Come before his presence with singing. Verse 4. The first part says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. So come before His presence, enter His gates with singing. So why is it important that we come together? Now we understand a little bit about this due to the COVID-19 virus and the epidemic, uh, or pandemic, whatever you want to call it, uh, when many people were separated for a long time. And they were unable to gather in a church service. But God commands corporal worship. This is something that is not to be put off. This is something that He demands of His people. He demands that we come together and worship Him, come before His presence with singing. This is a demand upon the church. We're demanded to enter His gates with thanksgiving. But why is it so important if you think about it? Before we had the preaching of the Word this morning, we sang. Have you ever wondered how come During the worship service, we don't just switch the order. Why don't we just begin immediately with prayer and the preaching and then sing everything afterwards? Why do we sing before we have the preaching of the Word of God? Well, there's a logical answer to that. We could say that we sing because it prepares our heart to hear the Word of God. It prepares us, it puts us in a worshipful atmosphere, as it were. 
and uh, prepares us to receive the Word of God with meekness. But I believe there is a good scriptural reason for why we should be singing before we had the preaching of the Word. Turn with me to Second Chronicles 5. Second Chronicles 5. And look with me in verse 11. Second Chronicles 5 and verse 11. And note what happened in this occurrence. This was the temple of God had just been built. King Solomon's temple just built. 2 Chronicles 5.11 And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place for all the priests that were present were sanctified and did not then wait by course. Also the Levites which were the singers all of them of Asaph, of Heman and of Jeduthun with their sons and their brethren being arrayed in white linen having cymbals and psalteries and harps stood at the east end of the altar and with them an hundred and twenty priests sounding with trumpets and it came to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endureth forever, that then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by the reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God." Here you have them praising and worshiping God with one voice. And as they praise and worship God as one, it ushers in the divine presence of Almighty God. Praise ushered in the presence of the Lord. Now don't misunderstand me. I know that we have the New Testament promise that where two or three are gathered together in my name. There I am in the midst of them. And that is a promise that always holds true. But if you've been in church for any length of time, you know what it is to be in a service and to sense an unusual presence of God that is not normal. And this is what happened in this day. As they began to praise and to worship God, it ushered in the presence of the Lord in the New Testament. It was rather similar. When the church, we read about in Luke 24, 53, that just after Jesus ascended, they were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. Then it was after that time of continually in the temple praising and blessing God, a short time later, that the Holy Ghost descended on the wings of praise in Acts chapter 2, And we read about the gracious outpouring of the Spirit and the multitudes that were there saved. And that was in connection with their praise and adoration and worship of God. My friend, I submit to you today that if we come to this place having worshipped and praised God and prayed and sought God as we ought to through the week, that when we come to this place in corporal worship to God, that there will be a sense of God's divine presence. This is what he has promised. It's important to note that praise is not the responsibility of one man. 
who is leading the worship. As I stand up here, it's not just my responsibility to lead. It's not a choir's responsibility to lead the worship. It's not to remove the pulpit and put some singers up here and let them sing and do all the worshiping. It is the entire congregation's responsibility to participate in the worship of God, to sing praise and adoration unto Him. When we enter through the doors of the church, when we enter through the gates, may we do so with thanksgiving and gratitude for the favor and blessings of God. One of the most sad things for someone to see, particularly the minister, as he stands behind the pulpit leading the singing, it's to see someone standing out in the congregation, just standing with a hymn book open and their mouth not even moving. The Bible says, let us offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks unto His name. You say, well, pastor, I really don't sound that wonderful. It doesn't really matter what other people think. What matters is what God thinks. And you're to offer a praise unto Him, even if you sound, even if you can't make a, a noise in a bucket, even if you make a horrible noise. It is better to offer praise unto God than to stand there and remain silent. God demands our worship. And we're not here to please men. I'm not here to leave here saying, wow, Brother Kelly has a great voice, because I know I don't. But it's to worship and praise God. This is why we're here, to offer a voice of thanksgiving and praise to God. And if God has done such a work in our hearts, should not we praise Him with every fiber of our being? Should not we sing from the innermost part of our being? Should not we sing to the rafters and lift our voice as loud as we can and praise for what God has done? I submit to you we must because of what God has done. He commands corporal worship. Come before Him worshiping and praising Him. And as we do that in the secret place and we come to the public place, we will know what it is like the Levites when we sing together as one for the presence of God to come down and rest upon us in unusual fashion. This was the norm. And that great revival that took place in Wales with Evan Roberts and how God so mightily blessed that movement as the people sang in the presence of God came down upon the churches of Wales through the singing of God's people as they worshiped God in the secret place and came to the public place. God came down and met with them. And we can see that throughout church history. But the fourth thing I want you to notice, that God also demands a humble acknowledgement. In verse 3, Know ye that the Lord, He is God, it is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people, and the sheep of His pasture. Note yet another imperative, He said, Know this, Know ye that the Lord, He is God. We are to worship God. We are to serve God. We are to know God. But what is it that we are to know about Him? We are to know that Jehovah is God. Notice that. That's so simple and so elementary, but it's so vital. Know ye that the Lord, Jehovah, He is God. 
is God? Yahweh, Jehovah. He is God. There is no other God. Exodus 20, verse 1 through 3 says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The first commandment. Know that Jehovah is God. And this is a very sad state in which we live in, because if you walk into a liberal church, they say, well, you can worship Jehovah, you can worship Christ, you can worship Buddha, you can worship Muhammad, and you can worship Allah, you can worship Confucius, you can worship any various Hindu god or a god of your own making, because they all lead us to the very same place. They all teach the very same things. It is all very moralistic teaching. But no, the Bible is very clear there is only one God. And His name is Jehovah. God revealed Himself to Moses. And Moses said, Lord, when I return to the Israelites, how will they know that it is you that have sent me? He said, you tell them I am that I am. I am Jehovah God. This name Jehovah and the worship of Jehovah alone was so important that he gave very many warnings throughout the Old Testament about what would happen if they worshiped false gods. In Deuteronomy 13, if you just look at that chapter when you got home this afternoon, Deuteronomy 13, you find there the danger of pursuing false gods. That if there was one that came and spoke in the name of a prophet, whether it was a brother, a sister, a mother, a father, or a close acquaintance or friend, and they coerced you to go and worship a false god, the Bible said that that person was to be stoned. The Bible also said if there was a city, and prophets went into that city and convinced the whole city to worship other gods, that they were to go in and raise the city to the ground for their idolatry. God will not tolerate idolatry. God will not tolerate the worship of other gods. And when you look at our country, when you look at the world, and you see how God's name is desecrated and dragged through the mud... So often the words come to my mind, Lord, what wilt thou do for thy great name? The Lord desires worship, and he desires that men know that he is God. There is no God but Jehovah. Jehovah God. What are we also to know about him? Not only that he is God, but Jehovah is the creator of man. Notice that in verse 3, it is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are not the product of evolution or chance. We are not the product. All of a sudden, you know, this has always baffled my mind. People that believe that uh, we are just the product of mere chance and evolution. And it's just simply illogical. Because they say that all of a sudden, sometime in a long, long, long time ago, millions and billions of years ago, there was these molecules moving about, and all of a sudden they ran into each other and exploded. And it created the universe that we see today. Now, 
I don't know about you, and I've often used this analogy, and I think it's a fitting analogy. If you asked me to go to a certain property and build a brick home, what if I was to take some bricks? Say I had a bunch of pallets of bricks, and I brought them, and I sat them on the foundation that they had just poured, and I took a bunch of dynamite, and I threw the dynamite into the bricks. Do you think that that will just create a brick home? No, that explosion will create disorder. It will be bricks everywhere. It will not create anything that is uh, magnificent or anything that is structural. It, it creates disorder. And so the whole evolutionary theory and the Big Bang theory that's trying to explain the creation of all things is illogical. And it's mathematically impossible and ultimately, if you ask them, I remember my physics teacher in high school, and he was explaining to us the Big Bang Theory. And I asked my physics teacher, I said, so where did these molecules come from that like ran into each other? Where, where did those come from? And ultimately, he came to the conclusion that matter is eternal. And you know what these people have done? They have created their own religion in which... It is a worship of man. It is a worship of self. It's called secular humanism. We say that God is eternal. They say that matter is eternal. And I find that we are on the right side of things, and they are not because their system is terribly flawed. Jehovah is the creator of man. From the womb God fashions man. Look with me in Psalm 139. Psalm 139, we see God so intimately involved, even in the act of conception and the formation of the baby within the womb as a creation of God. Psalm 139, verse 13, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. In verse 13, where he says, Thou hast covered me and my mother's womb, that word covered carries the idea of being knit together, put together in my mother's womb. It is God that creates life within the womb. Verse 15, My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Then eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written. God sees a life in the womb. Which in countenance was fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious are thy thoughts unto me, O God, how great is the sum of them. God is the creator of life. He creates a life in the womb. And this is why it's such a terrible tragedy in our own country. When you have slaughterhouses in which children within the womb are killed within the womb. They are created in the very image of God, woven together in the womb. My substance not hid from thee. God even personalizes it. He said, this is life in the womb. 
Jehovah is the creator of man. He is God. Another thing the psalmist wants us to be aware of is that Jehovah is the shepherd of his sheep. He says, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. In Ezekiel 34, 11, we read that he searches and seeks for his sheep. John 10, 1 through 5, the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. They know his voice. In John 10, 26 through 29, he preserves the life and protects his sheep. They are in the hand of his father and in the hand of the son. That's where you and I are, in the hand of the father and the hand of the Son, joined together and sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. My friend, that is a triune work of God that is impossible to ever be undone. Sealed with God's own Holy Spirit. But you know, it's astounding that God does here call us sheep. It should humble us to think we've been likened to such an animal. But it is a beautiful picture of God's grace, is it not? Why? Because a sheep is totally helpless. A sheep has no way to defend itself. And they are totally dependent upon the shepherd for any protection or any help. And that's where you and I find ourselves today. While we were yet without strength, while we were yet helpless, Christ died for us. We are totally dependent upon the shepherd. And this is a humble acknowledgement. And this is something God demands. The fifth thing I want you to see here from one of the demands of the Lord is that we are to have thankful hearts. Note what he says in verse 4. Towards the end, he says, Be thankful unto him. When we consider where we could be today, we have every reason to be thankful. Just think about it. If it was not for the grace of God and coming to where you were, convicting you of your sin and drawing you to himself, where would you be today? You wouldn't be here. You might have been in jail. You might have been dead. Your life could have been in shambles. Were not for the grace of God. We have every reason to be thankful unto Him. We have a reason to be thankful because we are a sheep and not a goat. Be thankful you have a church to come to and hear the Word of God, for others have not that privilege. Be thankful for the family God has given to you, both your biological family and your spiritual family. Be thankful for the job that God has provided for you. Be thankful in pleasant and bitter providences. Be thankful for the time God gives you with the ones you love most. Be thankful for every small advance of the gospel. Be thankful for a voice to be able to praise God with. Be thankful for feet to be able to go and serve Christ with. Be thankful for eyes to be able to read the Bible with. Be thankful for ears to be able to hear the preaching of the word. Be thankful for a tongue that can taste of God's common grace to mankind. We have much to be thankful for. And we could go on and on and on about things to be thankful for. But here he commands his people to be a thankful people, to worship him, to serve him, to know him, to worship him corporately, to be thankful. And the last of all we see as it regards the demand. 
He says, bless His name in verse 4, adoration. So often we throw the word bless around. But what does it mean in this context? Literally this word bless here means to adore with a bended knee. In light of all that the psalmist has said thus far, he is driven to adoration and reverence to Jehovah. He is given homage to whom homage is due. In light of the immediate context, when we enter the gates of the church, we should do so with great reverence. Ecclesiastes 5, 1 and 2. Be slow to speak in the presence of the Lord. In order to do this, you need an atmosphere conducive to such a requirement. This means that our lighting, our music, our attire, and our worship must be done in such a manner as to produce a reverence in the heart. A contemporary church fails to create such an environment. If I was to be up here, we were to remove the pulpit, and I was just to put a stool up here, and I came in dressed in flip-flops and shorts and a tank top, and we had a praise and worship band, and it sounded like some modern pop or uh, rock music. And we were all here, and we dimmed the lights down. We were all jumping around. That doesn't create an atmosphere of reverence. The Bible says, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. What does the Bible say when men in the Old Testament and even the New, when they encountered the very presence of God, when Moses saw the backside of God, when Ezekiel experienced the presence of God, when Isaiah saw God high and lifted up, when John the Revelator saw Jesus in John 1, what happened? The Bible said they fell as dead men before the presence of a holy God. You know, there's many churches, they talk about the glory of God was there today. I submit to you, friends, if the glory of God was in this place like it was in the Old Testament, we'd all be dead. Because we cannot stand that type of glory. Now, there's an idea in, in which, yes, of what I mentioned earlier about God's presence, an unusual presence... But this idea that many people have in the contemporary church of the glory of God and, and they have glitter falling from the ceiling and, and all this crazy nonsense that is not an inducive environment to create for the reverent worship of God. But we do not want to go the other extreme and promote ceremonies that look like popery. We don't want to be so far to the other end of the spectrum where we have the minister dressed in all these robes and we have all these candles lit and we are going through all this liturgy and ceremony and it's like popery. My friend, there needs to be a healthy balance in the middle. So last of all, we have, first we have considered Jehovah's demands upon us. But what is, I want to give you the reason for these demands. Note the very end of our psalm in verse 5. Note that he has given various imperative commands. He says, make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord. Come before his presence. Know that he is the Lord. Enter his gates. Be thankful and bless his name. Why? For the Lord is good. 
This is the reason for the demand. The reason why you should do this is because God is good. It is right for us to do all that He has commanded because He is good. And the word good here also means He is kind. Nahum 1 in verse 7 says this, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and He knoweth them that trust in Him. Psalm 119 verse 68 says that He is not only good, but He doeth good to His people. God not only is good, but He does good to you and I. And we who desire, we who deserve no kindness, receive kindness from the one who personifies kindness. What an amazing gift. We that deserve no kindness, receive kindness from the one who personifies goodness and kindness itself. So the reason why Good. Jehovah can place these demands upon us is because He is good. He is morally upright and perfect. God knows what is best. He has created us. He has created this whole entire world, and He that created us knows what is best for His creation. And the reason why God has given these demands to you and to me today is because this is what is best for you. It's like a parent that tells their child not to touch a hot stove. Why? Because they know it's best for them. It's like a parent that tells their child to look both ways when they cross the street. Why? Because they know what's best for them. And God's laws are not a hindrance and a damper upon us, but rather they are for our good. They are given to us that we might better have a better relationship with Him. So He is good. But note, secondly, the reason for the demand is not just because he's good. For the Lord is good, his mercy is everlasting. This is another reason why we should do all the above listed. This eternal mercy is promised to those that fear him. Psalm 103 and verse 17. Just turn with me to Psalm 136. We, say, we sang the psalm this morning. Psalm 136. And you will notice that in each one of these 26 verses, it ends by saying this, His mercy endureth forever. 26 times this is mentioned. God is trying to get across to you and to me that His mercy endures forever forever. It is this everlasting mercy that will ultimately usher us into everlasting bliss. And the reason why you and I should serve Him and do what He has thus commanded is not only because He is good and knows what's best for us, but He is one that is full of everlasting mercy. And His mercy is far greater than all of our sin. His grace is far greater than all of our sin. Where sin does abound, grace does much more abound. A third reason for obeying these demands is his truth endureth to all generations. His faithfulness and truth endures forever. He will not forget his covenant with his people. He is faithful to fulfill every promise because he is a God of truth and without iniquity just and right is he. Deuteronomy 32.4 
Because he is a God who cannot lie, what he has promised for his blood-bought people he will perform. So I ask you this morning, are you resting in this faithfulness of God? Do you trust that as you obey his commands that he will richly bless you? Do you trust that all his promises are in him? Yea and amen. Do you rest today in our Lord's goodness and everlasting mercy? You can today. For he is faithful to lavish both upon you in rich measure. The Scottish Psalter, we sang Psalm 100 earlier. In the Scottish Psalter, it says that we bless and praise his name always, for it is seemly so to do. Not only do I speak this to you, but I speak this to our state, to our counties, and to our country. They also are commanded to worship, serve, and do homage to the Son. Psalm 2, turn there quickly with me, to Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. Psalm 2, verse 10 through 12. It says, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Here God is issuing a command to kings and judges. Our country says that we should not involve religion and one's religious views should not cover their judgment. But here is a sovereign prerogative of the God of heaven. And according to Deuteronomy 17, when a king was to be put over a country, he was to take and write his own copy of the law of God, to read it every day, and to judge his nation based upon the word of God. And our country is to be governed under a similar manner. The king's need to be instructed. Judges of the earth, be instructed. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, or do homage to the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him, so we read here that not only do you and I as individuals have a responsibility to be under the authority of Christ and to worship Him, but the state itself, all nations have a responsibility to be under the authority of Jesus Christ and His sovereign Lordship. Christ is to be king not only over the church, but over all spheres, family, state, and church. Christ's royal demands extends not to just the working man, but to all men, to kings, representatives, senators, our councilmen, our town councilors, our presidents and prime ministers and dictators. The king of glory demands a worship from all creation. And his demands will come to pass. I want to end with this quote from the Dutch theologian of the early 20th century, Abraham Kuyper. Abraham Kuyper said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. Everything under creation 
as under the sovereign sway of Jesus Christ. There's not a single sphere, be it family, church, or state, by which Christ does not say, mine. And so he is right. In Psalm 100, the psalmist is right to command the worship of all lands and all nations. And these are Jehovah's demands upon the lands, and they will be fulfilled in time and space through the means of prayer and the preaching of the gospel and through the sovereign prerogative and working of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of the Lord today. We thank you for this wonderful psalm that we could read and meditate and think upon today. And God, I pray that we as individuals would follow these commandments. God, when we are reading your word, we should always ask ourselves, is there a commandment here for me to obey? God, here we have read several commandments that you've given to us to obey. And God, they are so hard for us because, God, it is not natural for us to praise. This is why the writer of Hebrews said that we are to offer the sacrifice of praise unto God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks unto his name. Because, God, it is a sacrifice to us at times to praise you when we don't feel like praising you. But, God, we all admit that, God, when the times have come, when we haven't felt like praising you, but we do, that, God, you many times shine through. And, God, many times you bless us, and you lavish your kindness and your goodness upon us, and you turn our mourning into dancing. And, God, you do marvelous things for us, whereof we are glad. And so, God, we pray, make us a praising people. Oh, God, it's so easy to become cold. God, it's so easy, Lord to be so heady and high-minded that, God, we forget to worship you. God, you have created man to glorify and praise your name. God, we, throughout all of eternity, will bow before thy throne and sing psalms and songs of praise to the Lamb that was slain. God, might we prepare ourselves for it down here by offering praise and worship to Thee, our God. God, we thank You again for this time we could spend together. Stamp these truths upon our hearts and our minds. And might we know Your grace and Your presence with us, and Your face shining upon us, till we meet again. If we ask it all in Christ Jesus' name, amen.